Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm really excited to have with me Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, who is a psychologist, impact entrepreneur. We're going to have to talk about what that really means and entails. Uh, with a passion for suicide prevention. Uh, she's also the president of the United Suicide Survivors International. And we have a really important topic to discuss today. Uh, and it's really, as, we, as we're talking about Suicide Prevention Week and, and International uh, Suicide Prevention Day, uh, is really the connection between safety and mental health, well-being, and suicide. So incredibly important topic uh, and very happy to have you with me, uh, Sally. Grateful to be here, Eric. I'm so glad to be making the connections here. Excellent. So before we jump into your story and, 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 and some of the themes around it, tell me a little bit about what it is to be an impact entrepreneur. So um, an impact entrepreneur brings kind of the heart of uh, a nonprofit, a mission-oriented perspective, but kind of the business mind and the uh, efficiencies of a business model. So social entrepreneurship is another another term for it, but it's basically um, a business that measures imp uh, its profit by impact. Excellent. Well, excellent. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this space. So maybe let's start with a bit of your your story, your background, and how you got passionate about this critically important topic. Yeah, so I'm a psychologist by training, and I'd been in the field of mental health upwards of 16 years, if you count my undergraduate years. Uh, when I lost my brother to suicide. Um, this happened in 2004. My brother was a business leader himself, a, an executive in the insurance industry. He had launched a company in his mid-20s by his early 30s that had gone national. Uh, and so all the ways that we tend to measure success in our country, oh. my brother had those, had those opportunities, and so he was beloved. Um, but what people didn't know is that he fought depression um, and mm -hmm. a mental health condition that ultimately proved to be fatal. And so many people have these before and after moments in their life, and his death was most definitely mine. Um, within a couple of months, I definitely felt a calling to try to figure out some bold gap-filling things that could prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. And that led, led us on a path to try to engage the workplace. It was um, eye-opening to me after all this year mm -hmm. in mental health that no one shared. <laughs> uh, the majority of people who die by suicide are um, working-aged men. Most of them have one attempt and most of them have never stepped foot in any type of mental health resource. So we're not gonna catch well. them through education. We're not gonna catch them through the healthcare system. They're working or they were just working. It's the workplace that's the most cross-cutting system. And so eventually that is what leads me to you. Wow, that's um, it, it, first uh, really sorry to hear about your loss, but I think it's really it, it really impactful, as you said, in terms of the role that workplaces have around this. Um, so and it's a common theme and people don't necessarily talk about it. we're talking about it more these days, uh, but there needs to be a lot more uh, openness around talking about these themes. Like you said, he was successful executives. Most people would think 
he's in a good spot um, exactly. and may not ask questions. Yeah. And when we first started to try to engage workplaces in like 2007, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, hey, you know, how about some suicide prevention in the workplace? <laughs> they were they were like, no, that's a medical issue. People need to take that stuff up with their doctors. And I was like, but they're not. Uh, and they're here, they're working, so how about <laughs> right. you, do, you do something? But there was just so much fear and resistance in the early days. Um, a much different story today. So so let's touch on a little bit on the link to safety, uh, because in many cases, like you said, a lot of workplaces are starting to talk about the topic, uh, but not necessarily linking it to safety. So can you bring some of the connection between these two areas? Sure. Um, so we didn't have great data. So I'm in I'm in the U.S. and everybody here kind of benchmarks their mortality and morbidity data off the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and that's where everyone was focused. And relatively speaking, suicide deaths, as measured there, were relatively low. They were only looking at that, however, were suicide deaths on a job site. Well, most suicide deaths don't happen on a job site. They happen somewhere else. So they were missing the fact that um, thousands, thousands of people were dying by suicide in in various male-dominated industries, um, construction, extraction, uh, transportation, including aviation, um, all kinds of all kinds of industries. And once those data became public in in the United States in 2016, that's when everything changed. Um, because when we were looking just at what, what we're focusing on as the fatal four, you know, slips and falls and mm-hmm. electrocution and cops sure. and all that, we're talking about hundreds of deaths and every single one of those deaths matter, or maybe upwards of a thousand deaths. When, it, when we come to suicide, just in the construction industry, we're talking about 5,432 deaths, somewhere in that range, um, every year. So no one knew that. So that was the aha moment. Mm. Um, and then when you kind of dig deeper, there's many connections um, that people were not drawing the dots through between psychological safety, mental health promotion, suicide prevention, and job site safety or workplace safety. So one is distraction. Everybody knows that when workers are distracted, Mm -hmm. they make errors and they put themselves in hazardous situations. Um, But no one has been talking about the fact that when you are in the throes of a pretty intense mental health condition or a mental health moment um, or suicide intensity, as we like to call it, your brain Mm -hmm. is off doing other stuff. And I'll speak from personal experience. I went through my own experience with major depression in the spring of 2012. For whatever reason, that perfect storm of stressors hit me. And I, I I had this like meta awareness that my mental health was going down the toilet. And it was one of those mm. things, like every single one of my usual coping strategies, where it was, you know, meditation, trying to eat right, trying to sleep. Nothing was touching it. I couldn't sleep. Food tasted like paste, so I stopped eating. Oh wow! Um, and I remember very distinctly, um, you know, I like others, I could zip myself up for little periods of time to go do the thing. And mm-hmm. for me, doing the thing is getting on a stage and talking to a whole bunch of people. And so I knew I was really unwell, um, but I also had to make a living. So I went to uh, this conference, and it was actually a sorority convention in, in Atlanta. <laughs> and I had to d- drive from the venue, from the from my hotel to the venue. And I remember driving on the highway and having a very clear thought: I should not be driving. Uh, my mind was racing mm. a million miles an hour. I had a, a, an overwhelming sense of panic that I was going to get in a car crash or get lost like there was no way I should have been driving and that's true for for hundreds of thousands of people every day that are on you know safety critical workplaces Mm -hmm. and 
their brain is working on something else um, that is not focused on the job at hand. So that's one. Number two, fatigue. Again, everybody mm -hmm. is connecting the dots between fatigue and job site yep. safety, but they're almost always only concerned with hours worked. And yes, we have lots right. of clear data that over certain thresholds, probably about 60 hours a week, we start to get too tired and we make mistakes that lead to safety problems. Um, but that's not the only thing that causes fatigue. Most mental right. health conditions um, have some kind of sleep dysregulation as part of the criteria. And it is either I can't fall asleep, I can't stay asleep, I try to sleep, but I have tons of nightmares. Um, I'm trying to sleep with a substance use disorder, so I'm not getting quality restorative sleep, or I sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and I never feel rested. I always say that sleep dysregulation, mm. sleep disruption is the canary in the coal mine for some kind of mental health condition. It's the thing that comes first. Um, and yeah, we all have rough nights of sleep when we've got a lot on our mind. Sure. But if it's night after night after night, you're going to feel tired. Um, and so that's the, another piece. The other piece is that um, some mental health conditions, you can see this on brain scans, cause the brain to not properly function. Um, and in the cases like depression, our synapses are just not firing in the way that they do when we're well. Um, you can see the brain's mm -hmm. really shut down and, and the experience, I remember this too, this experience is kind of like you're in this dark tunnel or this dark fog. Everything is negative. You're seeing the world through rust colored glasses. It's very hard to generate solutions to problems or to see things from a different perspective. So again, on safety critical workplaces, you need that kind of decisiveness, problem solving piece that's happening so that we can shift gears quickly and, and come up with a, a, an alternative plan. That's hard to do with an impaired brain. Um, and then lastly, mm -hmm. um, ongoing high levels of distress, whether that's internally caused from uh, uh, a predisposed mental health condition or externally caused from trauma or overwhelm or whatever, eventually something's got to give and things will start to fall apart in your body. So um, our immune system gets compromised, so we're much more likely to get things like, I don't know, viruses, um, you know, <laughs> we're much more susceptible to heart disease and even some cancers and so on and so forth. Pain issues uh, get exacerbated. Uh, and so again, we start to see this cycle happening. Uh, our, our mental unwellness contributing to our physical unwellness, contributing to work sites, stressors and pressures, sure. and, and then here we go around and around. So there's many, many ways that these things are connected. Yeah, and, and I think you, you touched on, we talk all the time about distraction, fatigue, all these pieces that you can't have focus on the task at hand. If you're thinking about other things, you're tired. So, so very strong connection. So what, what are some of the tactics that businesses can take to make a meaningful difference? Well, the good news is uh, the silver lining of the pandemic woke a lot of people up, a lot of workplace leaders, whether that's, you know, employers, professional associations, uh -huh. labor unions, whatever, because there was hardly a person on the planet that wasn't impacted in one way or another. Like we all had this shared <laughs> yes. experience of like, oh, my gosh, and workplaces got really concerned about uh -huh. the mental health disruption of their workforce. Um, and then add to that, we've got a new generation coming in, the Gen Zers, who've been right. fluent in mental health awareness from birth. They had those psychosocial education things in preschool. Like, they get it, and it's a huge priority for them. So when it comes to recruitment, retention, and engagement of young talent, workplaces have got to get this right, or we're going to continue to see mm -hmm. that great resignation and the churn that is so disruptive for so many employers. So right. that's where all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, people have leaned in in ways that they haven't leaned in before. 
And because we also had data in many of the safety critical um, industries that suicide was an issue, we have workplaces leaning in, not just on well-being, a lot of people like to do the light stuff, well-being, <laughs> stress management, conflict management, yeah, okay, all that stuff matters, and also, we've gotta talk about the hard stuff. <laughs> we've gotta talk about addiction. Yeah. We've gotta talk about overdose. We've gotta talk about suicidal despair, suicide death, mental health emergencies. We've got to prep workplaces for the whole continuum of experiences, not, not just you know, the lighter stuff that's easier to talk about. Sure. So um, what I love about a lot of the safety critical uh, industries is that they tend to be very problem solving and pragmatic people. Uh, and so for the mm -hmm. most part, people leaned in quickly and said, okay, we got a problem. How do we solve the problem? Give us some tools, we'll try stuff out. Uh, and they did. So um, there's a bunch of us that have also around the same time, we actually published it in uh, October, October 19th, 20, uh, 2019. So right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the United States, the National Guidelines for Workplace Suicide Prevention. Canada has something similar with their psychological safety standards for the workplace. Australia has a couple of things around a position statement for workplace suicide prevention. We were the late to the party, but we got it done in 2019. And all of these mm -hmm. documents, standards, guidelines, whatever you want to call them, give workplaces a roadmap to tackle the hard stuff. Um, and we, okay. in, our, in, in the United States, we frame it as upstream, midstream, and downstream. So there's a lot of things workplaces can do in the upstream part of the equation, which is um, promoting what we call protective factors and decreasing psychosocial hazards. Um, protective factors are things like belonging. You know, that's why the DEI work can come sure. into play. Um, it, it's about psychological safety where people feel okay yep. about bringing their whole selves to work and how do we create tr a trustworthy work environment, a culture of care. How do we position our leadership to authentically communicate that this is a health and safety priority for their workplace. How do we have um, lived experience stories come through and lived experience realize, realized as a form of expertise that can help co-design mm -hmm. all of these programs. Um, so all of those things that are in the upstream and then with psychosocial hazards, it's a really important um, paradigm shift for a lot of workplaces that it's not good enough just to get a whole bunch of quote-unquote troubled people to counselors. That's usually where everybody goes. Let's get these troubled right. people to the counselors. Um, for a whole <laughs> bunch of reasons, that's fraught. Um, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Uh, yep. And yes, that, that is helpful for sure if it's accessible, culturally responsive, all of those things. Um, and also, there's a whole bunch of stuff workplaces are doing every single day that are driving overwhelm, despair, mental unwellness, every single day. So they also need to take responsibility for mitigating or eliminating those psychosocial hazards. And one of the sure. aha moments that we had when we were looking at this, again, the United States has the inverted, inverted pyramid of, of um, the safe, uh, hierarchy of controls when it comes to job site safety. Sure. Um, every single work trail I go to, every single training room on safety critical workplaces, <laughs> I see this thing hanging up. It's like the Bible. It's like, you know, uh, yep. very, very important. Um, and so we all know that we're going to be far more successful if we eliminate or mitigate job site safety hazards in the environment then mm -hmm. if only the thing we do is promote our individual responsibility for wearing our PPE, like a hard hat, reflective sure. vest, whatever it is, we're gonna be far more successful if we figure out what the hazards are. Yep. Same thing here. 
but nobody's paying attention to this yet. Uh, or at least not in the United <laughs> States. U- UK is doing some really cool stuff. Um, they're actually yeah. starting to legislate this, which is very interesting. Um, we're not there, nowhere near there yet. But um, when we look at the psychosocial hazards, like problems in job design, so low autonomy, low job variety. You're right. Poor effort, reward, and balance, those kinds of things. Um, when we look at toxic relationships within a job site or within a workplace, so and especially supervisor, supervisee, if that's a very toxic relationship, the chances are good that work, worker is going to have high levels of distress. Um, another mm-hmm. piece, very, very common, is work and life getting disrupted. So life spilling into work, work spilling into life, and having no way to navigate that in a healthy way. Um, another really important piece that doesn't get talked about enough, but very clearly connected to suicidal despair, is if workers feel like they're a cog in the wheel. Like they really don't have mm. a, pur- a purpose, they don't connect to the mission, and they really feel like their contribution doesn't really matter in the big scheme of life, or, and really actually is helping someone else have success or profit or whatever. So that sure. disconnect, like the thing I do 60 hours a week, just doesn't matter. It leads to that sense of purposelessness. Um, and then lastly, there's also um, a lot of hazards that the workplace does just by, des- you know, by the nature of the work. So in our first responder communities, they're exposed to a lot of trauma. Same with our health, a lot of our healthcare communities. Um, there's just a lot of sleep disruption by the nature of the job, shift work or long mm-hmm. hours or early hours or not enough time off. All of those kinds of things can also contribute. And then the last thing I'll say is that um, Workplace culture also contributes to mental unwellness. If your main source of relieving stress culturally are uh, contribute to really poor hope coping strategies, like high levels of substance mm-hmm. use. I mean, I work a lot with first responder communities, and I know they get off a long shift. It doesn't matter if it's eight o'clock in the morning; they're hitting the bars, um, and uh, you know that just sets up people for addictive sure. patterns that lead to a whole bunch of dominoes falling over. So. Lots of things. Um, And so that's the upstream. In the midstream, we're trying Mm -hmm. to catch things early, trying to help with what we call early detection. This works for all healthcare issues. We want to catch those cancers, (laughs) lumps and bumps when they're small. We want to make sure we've got the blood pressure under control when the problems are coming on early. All of those things, same thing here. We want people to be able to identify emerging issues in their mental health and not wait until things are catastrophic to reach out for help. So the best way that we can do that is really help the workforce own this part of their health like they own other parts of their health, like we own our fitness and our nutrition. We know largely it's up to us and the choices that we make every day. It's not entirely, but we have a lot of agency over the decisions that we make in that space. Same thing here. Mm -hmm. Our well-being is a is largely a part of our decisions and how and our own self-awareness um, and so how can we provide a self-care orientation that this matters for our overall happiness and well-being in life and one of the things that we can empower workplaces to do in this area is advocate for anonymous confidential and voluntary self-screening um, there's several programs out there um, where workers mm-hmm. you know they could just host a screening day for depression uh, and really emphasize this is anonymous, confidential. It's hmm. not coming back to the employer. This is just a checkup from the neck up. We're going to do this like we do you yep. know, your fitness tests or other kinds of things. Um, the other piece that I know we're going to get into in a little bit is peer support. Um, we have mm-hmm. found in safety-critical environments, there's often great reluctance for a whole bucket of reasons for workers to reach out to formal mental health supports. There's layers and layers and layers of reasons why there's a lot of reluctance, we'll get into that. Um, And so 
peer support, formal trained peer support programs, not necessarily peer support groups per se, but a formal mm -hmm. peer support program where people are, uh, are recruited and trained and yep. they self-identify, they've got outward facing cues that you're a safe person to talk to. Um, most of them have pretty significant lived experience so they can come and meet people where they are, um, offer empathy because of their own shared meaningful experiences and so on. That seems to be the major missing link in many workplaces. Mm. They, they just land so hard on, we've got an EAP, why is, why is our utilization rate 2%? <laughs> uh, because people don't trust it, but they trust a peer. Yep. Um, so peer support is, a, is, a, is another piece. Is also an accessibility and, and relatability yes. piece because I, I I saw that in 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 the aviation space where there was peer support and it was almost the onboarding to EAP so they could triage, but exactly. people felt comfortable. They understood. They, they related to the person. It was hugely powerful versus EAP. I've I've seldom seen people other than a manager saying, "Oh, don't forget to call EAP." Which, by the way, most managers have never called. So why would I trust right. you? This is the same thing when you yourself has a have never used it. Exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. So so let, all right, let's dive into peer support a little bit more because um, for many workplaces, uh, this is a daunting step because they have HR mm -hmm. folks, they have employment lawyers who are like, oh no, like oh wow, the <laughs> liability, the liability, and they get, uh, you know, they get up all in a in a frenzy about fears of being sued, and uh, what we're learning again from our European colleagues is actually the opposite's true. If you don't sure. start doing some best practices around providing mental health supports for your workforce in areas we know that work you're going to be seen as negligent. You're going to be seen as not doing what you need to do to protect your workforce. So this is one of those areas. And we have some mm -hmm. proven examples, like you said, in aviation. Um, I'm familiar with Project Wingman out of uh, American Airlines. They became a, a really great gold standard for the, for the world. And, you know, all of a sudden now, most major airlines have a very, very mm -hmm. viable peer support program for the pilots um, and, uh, and then many other roles within <laughs> aviation. Um, you know, and when we think about it, yeah, nobody wants a suicidal pilot. Nobody. No, not right? a good idea. <laughs> and at the same time, we or were a drunk one. Right. And we were preventing <laughs> our pilots from raising their hand and saying, I need help. Well, that's a conundrum. Yeah. So peer support became, again, that safe, that safe pathway for people to get support. Um, we've got a lot of really great examples from our first responder communities, especially uh, you know law enforcement, fire service, and big municipal departments. They've had things operating for decades. So we've got models that we can then translate mm -hmm. and transculturate to other types of industries. And my joy at the moment, I spend probably 80% of my time or more in the construction space, is to watch mm -hmm. the construction industry start to embrace this. The unions have stepped forward most boldly Good. first. And... Uh, they're having some really good experiences. They were already set up for that in many ways mm -hmm. because of the culture of I've got your back. Uh, but now we've got professional associations coming in and, and many large uh, large companies starting to look at this with seriousness. So it's great. And um, not only is peer support good for the person who's in distress, it's good for the peer supporter. Mm -hmm. We have this, again, huge body of data that shows helping others helps us. So it helps that peer sure. support person stay in recovery, be accountable for their own wellness. It's a great, great gap filling thing that uh, I see is absolutely the future. Oh, and to all the employers out there, cost savings. Let me just say that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not been replicated in any peer review journal, 
but when I ask aviation, when I ask my fire service folks, um, you know, how much of the distress or despair do you feel is resolved at the peer level? The consistent number mm -hmm. I get from these different different industries is about 80 percent, 75 to 80 percent, hmm. they say, is resolved at the peer level, which means people are not having to take formal medical leave or uh, accommodations. They're not having to going into any costly treatment for themselves or the company. They're resolving things at the peer level so people can stay at work and do what they need to do to, to support their workplace and their families. Um, cost savings is another awesome reason to do peer support. Very compelling argument on this one. And, uh, and and this is something I think a lot of organizations need to really seriously look at because I've seen some some cases where, as you mentioned, often union gets involved, partners on that front. Um, but the, the how powerful it is, how many more people can use it. I think it's a huge game changer in this space. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. Um, and the last thing I'll mention in the midstream space, again, midstream is about mm -hmm. identifying problems as they're emerging, not wait till things are catastrophic, um, is training. So again, a lot of, lot of safety sure. critical incidents, uh, safety critical industries, training is the first go-to. Well, we got a problem, let's have a training. Um, and so this is, again, a very quick cultural fit. We can just bake into stuff that's already happening. Um, I've seen some very innovative people, and again, for the US, uh, bake it into their OSHA 30 requirements as a, as an elective that some quasi required um and uh there's lots of ways we can do it so there are what we call gatekeeper trainings out there it's kind of a unfortunate name but it's stuck over the decades basically gatekeeper means it's like cpr um, we're training everyday mm -hmm. people to know enough to recognize when somebody might be in in a situation that's driving despair at pretty high levels and to have the competence and confidence to go in just like a CPR person to do what's needed yep. to sustain that person until we can link them to the next level of care. Uh, and so this is a saturation training, just like CPR. We wanna train as many people as possible in the hopes that when something's going down, somebody's gonna have that confidence to step in and mm -hmm. know what the next level care needs to be. Maybe it's to the formal peer support person, maybe it's to the EAP, maybe it's to a, a very well vetted substance use recovery center in the community, whatever, they're gonna be helpful in kind of connecting those dots. And if not, they're gonna know who knows. Um, and that's what, uh, that's what it does. And so uh, some of these um, that are well known are QPR, it stands for question, persuade, refer. One another one is Safe Talk coming out of Canada, but globally implemented. Um, and then I'm involved with one that's specifically addressing the workplace. It's called it was called Working Minds. Um, we're going through a branding change this year to Vital Cog, and we can put this in the show notes or, um, <laughs> if if that's of interest. Sure. Um, where again, we're just in an hour or two. We are training everyday people to be able to intervene with best mm. practice skills and conversations and re and referral and support. Um, will everybody do it? No. Does that mean it's a failure? No. We train millions and millions of people in CPR every year. Right. Most, like myself, never used it, probably never will. Yep. But I'm glad I have it. Right. I'm certainly glad I have it. And then, uh, and then lastly, downstream. 
Um, and again, that training thing gets some of the HR folks and the employers like, oh, no, are we now responsible for the things? I'm like, were you responsible for CPR? If it didn't work out, if they broke a rib, are you responsible? <laughs> no, because nope. we all believe in the Good Samaritan uh, who is just a layperson coming in to help with that Good Samaritan perspective. They don't have the, here's the killer kicker in the in the law piece. They don't have the duty. It's not like this is their job, like it sure. would be if you were a licensed psychologist. No, they're a good Samaritan doing what they've been told is helpful in the moment. Um, so that's how we get through that mm -hmm. quandary. Um, and then finally, downstream. So downstream is getting prepared for worst case scenario. Um, you are prepared for worst case scenario around cyber attacks. You are prepared for worst case scenario around mm -hmm. you know some kind of job site disaster. You need to also be prepared for worst case scenario for a mental health emergency because it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Sure. Most people will have one. Um, you know, one in five are having them now. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're going to need to get prepared. And so what does that look like? Well, number one, it looks like go in and check out the mental health resources you have because chances are you have no idea what they do. Most most companies went to the lowest bidder for their EAP. And guess mm -hmm. what? You get what you pay for. So. Um, if you go in, I say kick the tires, go and do some sh secret shopper work, make, them, make some calls, um, maybe have a session or two yourself, see what it's all about. You're <laughs> going to realize either that it's amazing and people are really responsive and understand your industry, or you're going to realize there's a lot of problems. Um, and then you right. think through, what if you're a person on their worst day trying to navigate the system and not having people call right. you back and not feeling like people understand the culture of the work that you do? Um, I'm going to say you're probably going to need to often, in many cases, find a better EAP. Um, and that's, the, that's been my experience mm -hmm. with pretty much every employer I've worked <laughs> with. And then also you probably need more than just um, an in-person, traditional kind of mental health service provider model. Uh, a lot of safety critical industries work mm -hmm. round the clock. Um, they don't have time or accessibility to drive somewhere and have an in-person thing. So there's been a lot of innovation in the mental health space during COVID. It forced us to get through some pre mm -hmm. previously uh, challenging barriers. So again, you need to vet it though, because oh my goodness, the marketplace just proliferated with all kinds of apps and telemental health and digital health, all the stuff. <laughs> Not, and most of them are crud. So find the good ones um, and find the ones that will speak right. to your industry. So that's number one. Number two, you need a crisis response plan. It's not good enough just to have the resources there. You need to equip your managers, supervisors, the people who are in those decision-making spaces, even your um, communications folks. What are we gonna do? You know, What are we gonna do if we have an overdose? What are we gonna do if we have a suicide? On, on a job site where it's public facing, we've had witnesses, the media's coming down, we've got all kinds of people traumatized. We've got many, many people significantly bereaved by the situation. We need a plan in place and you put that plan in place before the thing happens. Because if you're trying to put that thing, do the thing on the fly, the, the chances are good you're gonna make a whole host of pretty bad mistakes that are not only gonna not support the people left behind, but can also increase risk for future suicide deaths. So you want to have a plan in place. And so mm. we, ha we have a guide, it's called a uh, manager's guide to to suicide postvention is what we call that um, at work uh, and you know just other things that people are going to need to be equipped 
Um, we are putting out, as I mentioned to you earlier, a white paper, um, and again, we'll put mm -hmm. that in the show notes also, for HR and employment law, because they have so many fears about how to manage this that they get stuck. Yeah. Um, and we want to help address some of those fears to help them move forward to do the right thing for people who are experiencing their darkest day. And so in that white paper, we talk about the kinds of accommodations that can be helpful for people mm -hmm. experiencing mental health emergencies, not only in themselves, but also in their families. And so that we can come up with a really good collaborative plan that upholds the dignity of people who are suffering. That's, the, that's a very important point, that we don't respond out of fear but we respond out of compassion to help people through because we're all gonna take our turns uh, and we would like to be treated mm -hmm. uh, in that same way with dignity, partnership, respect, all of that. And then finally, again, if there should be um, some kind of, of, of death of a, of a coworker or a client or a vendor, you know, something that's gonna impact the workplace in a significant way, we need to create safe spaces for people to grieve, um, to come together. Not everybody's going to mm. need it long term, um, but we need yep. to be we need to be on point with the communication, with the with the support that we're providing. And what we know about suicide is, um, in particular, it's complicated, especially if you've lost a first degree loved one, a child, say, or a partner, or a parent, or a best best friend. It's not the thing you're going to get over in the three days we often give people to grieve. It's going to take years. And, and, and in many cases, if you're a parent that's lost a child, it can take decades before any kind of new normal um, comes around. Mm -hmm. You're just suffering very deeply for a long time. So how can workers work with people who are in that space to make sure they don't lose an otherwise incredible worker? Sure but support them because I'll tell you what I had a workplace that did that for me I worked at a, um, when my brother died I was at a working at a Jesuit uh, university um, a Catholic school and um, I'm not Catholic but I'll tell you what the Jesuits mm -hmm. they understand grief and they came alongside me mm -hmm. in the moment here I am uh, almost 18 years out from the loss every year they still send me a note thinking of your oh, wow. your, your precious brother Carson today I get chills just thinking about it you know, wow. mag magnified the number of employees, the number of years. They are handwriting these right. notes for thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year. That matters, right? And when I was going through it in right. the acute sense, they gave me time off. They gave me flex time. They allowed me to go to the, you know, the support groups and the grief counselors. Like, they gave me a lot of grace and a lot of space. And because of that, I was a super loyal, gracious, and grateful employee for a long time. So it makes a big right. difference. Yeah. You've shared a lot of incredible resources. And I think there's <clears throat> the two things that really struck me is in terms of the training um, that that can become available because people need to recognize what it's peer, even leaders in the safety language. You talk a lot of actively caring. That's a component of actively caring for your team members. Um, and and the other theme that came up is really the evolution of uh, EAP towards peer support. And I think these are two areas as well that you, you've helped and you can help organizations in terms of taking that step forward. Is that correct? That is. And and I'm excited to say that I also think what's on the next phase of the frontier here of how we're going to um, move this forward, uh, we're piloting a certification program right now. It's not ready for prime time, but it will be in 2023, mm -hmm. um, where we are working with the state of New York. So they have underwritten this um, mm. to walk a cohort of organizations, all of them in safety critical organizations, through those nine best practices that I just shared with you sure. on 
providing them technical assistance and coaching. It's a deep dive. It's not a flyby two-hour workshop. It is a, you know, it's a six-month. We would prefer that it was a 12-month, but it's a six-month implementation of regular training modules, and then we've got deliverables, mm-hmm. and we got third-party verification, just like a LEED certification. There's a high level of accountability that they're demonstrating they're doing best practice. Um, they have to pass quizzes, all these kinds of things. Uh, so far, so good. So hopefully that'll be ready for primetime in 2023, and then we can really move uh, it forward. I already have some owners um, for construction that are saying, can you speed that up a little bit? Because we need some kind of benchmark to know, like, are you really doing the thing? Or are you just checking boxes here? So that's also pretty exciting. And, and given the safety implications, do you normally see safety organizations reaching out, or is it safety organizations partnering with HR and and HR reaching out, what do you normally see? Because it, what I've normally seen is, is it becomes the HR dialogue as opposed to the, the safety dollars, whereas I think it, it needs to also be owned in the safety arena. So in the early days, again, 2007, mm-hmm. 2011, um, my inclination was to go to HR. It made sense, right? They're the ones who are sure. the people people. They are the ones who are in charge of the benefits. And I got, oh, oh, no, because I'm talking suicide, which is scary, <laughs> scary, scary to them. Right. Um, but they were like, oh, no, 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 no. Um, and so I got frustrated. And I'm like, why are you not like running with this? When the safety data or when the death data came out, the safety mm-hmm. people came right up to the front. Uh, and like I said, the problem solving people, they understand the connections. They have the mechanism around that training piece, I would say, in my world. The safety people have made far more advancements than hmm. the HR folks. The HR folks have been more of a roadblock um, historically, and that's not universal, but historically. Yep. More, more of a put the brakes on this, let's let's back it up and play it down, where the safety people are no, like, nobody dies. That's our goal. Mm-hmm. Nobody dies yep. and nobody suffers, whether it's from a, a, a mental health injury or a physical injury because they're connected. They get it. Um, so... We're really driving what we hope is more of a partnership between the two, uh, because obviously we've got to get sure. the HR and employment law people on board championing this, not just putting the brakes on it. Um, yeah, they need to do the due diligence with the laws, absolutely. And we want them to feel confident, which is why we published the white paper, uh, but don't mm. put the brakes on it just because you're afraid. If it's right. just your absolutely. fear, because we're dealing with life and death, I get it. but. We don't, we, don't, we don't respond well when we're so afraid. We go into self-protection mode, yeah. and then we can't see the options. That There's many. So I love the partnership when, when things come together. So for example, we, we mm-hmm. have a team do that implementation in the HOPE certification, and I say, absolutely, we need someone from HR, we need someone from safety, we absolutely need people with lived experience. I need someone with decision-making power, someone up at the top who knows what's going on here. Um, and someone from communications. That's a that's a really strong team sure. that can help do this implementation really, really well. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Sally, for sharing all of this. I know you also have a white paper that's coming out on, on near misses and incident reporting and the link to, yes. to mental well-being. Do you want to give it maybe a quick highlight on, on some of the links there? Yeah, well, I, I'll just give the punchline, which is psychological safety, psychological safety. So if it means that I have psychological safety telling you I've made a mistake, um, then I feel like you're going to have my back and not punish me for that information. And that's how we learn about near misses um, or even incidents. Um, If I have psychological safety to say I don't feel right 
there's something wrong mm-hmm. um and i trust that you're going to support me and have my back i'm much more likely to disclose that when the problems are small if i feel like you're going to fire me or punish me or or be um or discriminate against me I'm going to white knuckle it. And that can end up being a fatal sure. overdose in the porta potty, which happens all too often. So, um, and then the last piece that ties in with psychological safety is if I feel that I don't belong here because I'm different in some way, which of course has been such a hot topic, then I won't, I won't ever come out with my whole self. I won't tell you what sure. I, it's really like for life for me or the experiences of being bullied or discriminated against, how that impacts me and my well-being, I won't share that with you. And again, that leads people to overwhelming levels of despair. So mm-hmm. this a whole idea of psychological safety is way more than I feel, uh, I, I don't feel safe in admitting a mistake or maybe suggesting, yeah. suggesting an innovative way to solve a problem. It really goes to the heart of people's well-being. And so I'm a big fan of the movement. I just say we need to expand the definition a little more. And that's how things are tied very closely to the near-miss and, uh, and uh, job site safety literature. So I'll send that to you. I'll put those in the show notes. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Sally, for sharing all these great insights. If somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the easiest way to reach out probably the one-stop shop pieces are as our website so sally spencer thomas.com my name sally spencer thomas.com excellent thank you so much sally thank you thank you for listening to the safety guru on c-suite radio leave a legacy distinguish yourself from the pack grow your success capture the hearts and minds of your teams elevate your safety Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.